What's up, everyone? This is episode 113 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, I got a lot of good feedback this week about last week's card show segment. I don't expect everyone to adopt my perspective as their own, but it's nice to be able to share it, so thank you for that. If you'll remember, I talked about some interactions I had with people and then a couple of PC cards I picked up. Um, As it turns out, I went to another show this past weekend, and on the contrary, it was a dud. Well, it wasn't really a dud, but I went with the intention of buying. I wanted PC cards, and I wanted cards I could eventually turn into PC cards, right? That's kind of my plan here. I didn't purchase a single thing. There were lots of the same shiny cards in slabs. That's not anything new. But the dollar boxes seem to be deteriorating quite a bit from what they used to be. And I usually love digging through dollar boxes. Now I'm seeing all the cards that used to be in the dime boxes, all the early 90s junk wax, and people are just dropping all of that stuff in their dollar boxes. I mean, literally, like, I think I saw one complete 1990 hoop set, minus, like, Jordan and Sean Kemp and Gary Payton, maybe, um, just in a dollar box. Um, so very few numbered cards, very cool inserts, uh, just junk. But the show itself was still a valuable experience, though, in the sense that, one, I had fun, and two, it gave me a continuing pulse on where things seemed to be moving. It reinforced my thoughts on the shift in the hobby ecosystem that I talked about last week. Um, and I also try to listen in on conversations as I'm moving around the room. Sometimes you can't help but to hear them. So, you know, at one point I heard someone brag to someone else that he watched a lot of Sasha T videos on YouTube. If you don't know who that is, he's a content creator. Um, I feel like he does a really good job of documenting his card journey. Um, But he is, you know, he's flipping cards, right? Um, I don't partake in the hobby quite the same way he does, but I still really enjoy his content. It's not for everyone. It's interesting to me, though. So anyway, someone at this show was bragging about watching a lot of Sasha's videos. I I thought that was a weird little flex. Uh, And then not long after, I heard a guy asking a customer, hey, do you watch Sasha T on YouTube, right? So he kind of has to clarify. He pauses to see if they know what it means, and then he kind of adds the end part on. Um, He said his son does. And that goes to show me that even at a smaller or a low-end show like this one, I think a lot of people are taking their cues from people they see online. Um, And that makes sense because they're accessible and we've been sitting at home for so long and they create content that's just so easy for us to consume. Um, I know I've seen Sasha accumulating lots of slabs at shows now that PSA isn't taking anything in. I think that's a pretty good move. He knows for the time being that he can leverage that to his advantage. And a lot of people are following suit. Now, the one thing I think people forget about is that he has a pretty wide network that extends beyond just eBay that allows him to unload this stuff quickly. A lot of what he does is time sensitive and he has the knowledge and the resources to to do what he has to do. All of that is to say listening in on those conversations clues me in on the fact that during this shift a lot of people are going to continue to look for people to guide them. Now just understand that wherever you are in your hobby journey your situation is not 100% like someone else's, and you need to adapt whatever it is you're wanting to copy 
in order to make it your own. Kind of like I talked about last week. All right, enough about card shows and other people's shows. Let's talk about this show. I've got a jam-packed episode for you today. I'm going to start with a little PSA update. I've got a couple pieces of mail that I'm excited to talk about. And then in the latter portion of the show, I'm going to weigh in on a question I saw on Reddit this week about selling graded cards. I guess there's a lot of grading chatter today, even though that's not something I do a whole lot of myself. But as I said last week, it plays such a big part in our hobby ecosystem, so it's all relevant. So you want to stick around for that. Okay, so the main headline that I want to share with you today is that PSA has purchased a software company called Genement in an attempt to improve their overall grading process. And I'm going to take the majority of the information for this segment from an article on PSACard.com. As always, when I cite a source, I encourage you to go there and read the entire thing if you have the chance. In the meantime, I want to touch on a few of the main points for you today. So according to this write-up, quote, Genement Technology analyzes each trading card in real time and is able to provide diagnostics, measurements, and detect alterations or other changes made to a card's surface in an effort to assist human graders. It will also provide unique card identification or card fingerprinting by identifying the exact card in order to track provenance, resubmissions, condition changes, and other attributes over time, end quote. Um, and then we got a quote from Nat Turner who said, Acquiring and integrating Genement will allow us to grade tra- uh, more trading cards faster while improving accuracy. We're not eliminating humans from the grading process. We're improving the process by adding technology, end quote. Um, so this is really intriguing to me. As I've discussed on here before, Nat recognizes the importance of technology in his other business ventures, or he did, I should say. Well, I'm assuming he still does. Um, And we assumed then that that would carry over to PSA too. Well, that didn't take long. And in addition to viewing a demo for Genement on YouTube, I heard the founder of this company on this week's episode of Let Me Get That Potograph with Drew. Um, I thought that was an interesting listen. You'll definitely want to check that out. So I don't want to just, you know, summarize and try and speak for them. They are actually out there speaking. Um, Without going into too many details though, Um, They are, it looks like they are still hammering out exactly how this technology will be utilized, but the acquisition centers around the desire for, at least I gathered, optimization, efficiency, and integrity. And as far as optimization and efficiency, I'm curious to see how long they're going to keep um, essentially blocking submissions. And uh, first off, I, I applaud that move. I've said that before. But I've read in several places that the backlog is still somewhere around 10 million cards. And I've also read that they're trying, that they are grading about 25,000 cards a day to catch up. So if you do the math, 10 million divided by 25,000, that's still 400 days. So I I don't think they'll stay closed for that long, but I could be wrong. Either way, they're making moves. They're thinking outside the box to try and speed things up and remain accurate at the same time. That's important. I applaud them, and I'm rooting for them. Um, Now, additionally, they want to establish the integrity of the brand. Well, actually, I think I saw them say maintain the integrity of the brand. I'm going to say establish because I I think there's a lot to be desired there in the past when it comes to uh, leadership and integrity at PSA. But um, I've talked plenty about trimming and patch swapping and all that sort of stuff on this show before. 
In theory, the technology will allow them to take pictures of the card and identify unique markings or unique measurements that will raise a red flag if that card ever comes through again. I think that's going to work great for vintage cards, especially um, where you can see some of the fibers and marks in the cardboard. It's it's doing um, a lot of the hard, tedious work that humans have tried to do. And I, I mean, I know, you know, we've had Dan on the show. He's one of the guys that did this, where they would literally go through vintage card prices and go through an entire history of a card and match these cards up. I mean, that's hard. If you can get a computer that does that, you know, in near real time, that that would be incredible. So I think it'll work great for vintage. I'm not sure if that will work as well for modern, but, you know, at the same time, I'm not an expert in AI, so I'm going to wait and see. Um, And, you know, when you consider the fact that these companies weren't even logging serial numbers or doing a Google search for some of the big name cards as recent as a year ago, or in PSA's case, looking at their, you know, their magazine or whatever, um, it's a huge step in the right direction. So I'm actually pretty excited to see where this thing goes, so much so that I think I can say I'm starting to trust PSA. Um, You know, of course, I still want to see how things play out, but I trust their leadership, or at least I trust Nat. And, um, you know, I think they're moving aggressively in the right direction. I really like all the moves they've made, and it even has me wanting to grade a few more vintage cards, Um, but not yet. I'm going to let them sort everything out first, and I'm definitely not paying to express vintage cards. All right, let's talk about the mail. I'm actually going to pivot a little bit today and start with a question I received. I know that's a bit of a stretch to call that mail, but humor me for a moment. I don't normally do the question thing outside of the listener mailbags, but this was a fun one. I figured I'd try to sneak it in in a week where I didn't have as much um, actual mail to cover. Anyway, This is a question from a listener named Matthew, and he asked, Do you know why the 1971 Topps Maravich is listed as a short print? The physical printing cutting process for vintage cards would make for an interesting show. Well, I agree with that 100%. I don't have anything big ready for this week, but I hope this um, little segment suffices for now. So I know that there are some eBay listings that label the Maravich as a short print, Off the top of my head, I wasn't sure if it was or not, but it it sounded plausible. Um, I always assumed the higher number cards in the set were limited, and this is not one of those. Um, It was just that was the ABA, a lot of the ABA guys. But, um, you know, that's what I'd been told, and that's usually the way it worked in other sports like baseball and football. They would print fewer of the higher numbered cards. Um, Well, after a little digging, it turns out that Maravich was not a short print. Um, And in fact, Pete was the opposite. He was a double print. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, um, that digging that I did and the information that I found. So I I know I've talked a little about this with the 48 Bowman set and the 57 Topps set, but a lot can be learned just from studying the original uncut sheets. And if I can't find an image of one online, um, Usually one of the other sites like Beckett or Cardboard Connection has some info about the logistics, and in this case I turned to Beckett. So on the uh, 1971-72 TOPS page, it says, quote, National Basketball Association players are depicted on cards 1 through 144, and American Basketball Association players are depicted on cards 145 to 233. The set was produced on two sheets, The second production sheet contained the ABA players as well as 31 double-printed cards, which would be the NBA guys, uh, from the first sheet. 
So these double prints are indicated in the checklist below. And then they, of course, listed them out. So um, if you crunch the numbers there, NBA players were 1 through 144 and were printed on sheet 1. That means there were 12 rows of 12 players. So I think it's safe to say it's no coincidence that they chose 144 NBA players then. Uh, you know, we don't think about these things, but a lot of it does come down to logistics. So um, I wish they had chosen 144 for the second sheet. You know, I'd love to have had 144 ABA guys, but my guess, and I want to emphasize that this is a guess, albeit um, an educated one, my guess is there were so few teams to begin with, um, and many of the ABA teams were constantly in flux. I mean, some of these teams moved, or they were, you know, operating out of multiple cities, just a lot of weird stuff happening. So um, it was probably, you know, it would have been hard to piece all of that together. So I'm assuming that's why they had the entire ABA run on the second sheet, plus the 31 double prints for the NBA. Um, I've heard for other sports and sets that they would rotate the extra, um, you know, the extra 31 cards. They would they would have a rotation of NBA players so they could try and um, distribute things evenly. But it, it doesn't look like they attempted that here. Um, I want to make a note again. And I've said this before, but it. it the 1971 set was the first year to include ABA players. Imagine having two rival leagues in the same mainstream set today. Um, it's kind of wild when you think about it, but it happened. All right. Anyway, great question. That was a fun one to read up on, and I hope you don't mind that I snuck that into the mail segment today. But on to the actual mail, the physical mail. The first envelope I want to talk about today came from one of the players, directly from one of the players, in the 1971 top set that I just talked about. And you guys have heard me talk about sending cards in the mail before to get signed. It's something that I used to do a lot, um, but at, at one point I just ran out of guys that I wanted to send to. Well, now that things are so you know hectic in the hobby, I'm trying to go back and fill in some of the gaps, and that's that's been fun for me. So, Or I'm trying to send to some of the guys that are signing now, because these guys will go through phases where, you know, they might not sign for years and then all of a sudden they've decided they're going to sign for a month. Maybe they get overwhelmed again and they stop. So um, some of you have asked where I get that information. You know, how do you, how would you even know that? Um, it's a subscription website called sportscollectors.net, um, sportscollectors.net. Once again, it's $15 a year, but well worth it if you're going to be sending cards out. No, I'm not getting paid by them. Um, I just think that site rocks. All right, so a couple weeks ago, I was on there. I was browsing the recently reported returns, and I saw that Dave Bing was signing for a small fee. Now, for the longest time, Mr. Bing didn't have a lot of stuff out there, and I know people that tried to put together sets of the 50 greatest players. Remember, you know, when they named them in the 96-97 season. So they were trying to put together autograph sets of these players um, and for them, tracking down something of Dave Bing was tough. He had some sticker autos for tops in the mid-2000s, but there just wasn't a lot out there. And I could be wrong. I don't think he had a certified on-card autograph until the Leaf Metal set in 2012, and, and even those didn't have team logos on them, which I could be wrong. I didn't see anything in the 96 Top Star set, but maybe he did. But anyway, if he did, it was really hard to find. There just wasn't a lot out there. So I went through my stuff, and I had a rookie, 
in the big batch of 69 tops that a listener named Scott sent me a while back. So thanks again, Scott. And I had an extra 72 tops sitting around, which you guys know I've already done that signed set, but um, my actually my day Bing card in that set, the signature wasn't very good. So I thought I'd send this one in and give it another try. Well, after um, about a week and a half, those came back with great looking blue signatures on them. And you're always at the mercy of whoever's signing, even if you're paying them a small fee, you know, that you're not entitled to any type of pin, right? That, that was never in the agreement. So um, a lot of times you'll get something back signing whatever that player has laying around. I'm not super picky. Some of these guys, like I said, will only sign for a small window of time. You have to be quick. If I see that a player signing in blue, that's usually a little extra motivation for me to send something in. So it's not every day that you get a signed rookie of one of the NBA's 50 greatest. I'm very happy to add these to my collection. Um, I already had the unsigned cards laying around, so it was cheap too. And if you haven't seen those on my social media, go back and take a look. I think I posted those on Tuesday. All right. The last card I want to talk about is a 2006-2007 Upper Deck Trilogy Patch, numbered to 50, of Moses Malone. And if you haven't figured it out yet, I'm going back in time for a lot of my pickups. And this is a three-color relic that features him in his Philadelphia uniform. Uh, Moses wore a lot of different uniforms over the years, but when I think of Moses, I think of him as a sixer. And I've got a little project where I'm working on legend RPAs. Obviously, these guys didn't have memorabilia cards when they were rookies, so I'm trying to collect a rookie of theirs, a patch, and an autograph card separately. And then I take a picture of them together and I call them RPAs. I finished some tough ones for guys like Pete Maravich and Wilt Chamberlain. Um, I just finished an Oscar Robertson as well. So I didn't have a Moses patch yet, and I wanted to grab one. So I'm actually looking for a bigger patch, but um, this one will have to do for now. If you're out there and you have a Jumbo Moses Malone patch that you're looking to move at a reasonable price, shoot me a message. Okay. Before I move on to today's main segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. And if you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com and click either the Fanatics link or the eBay logo at the top. Shop as planned, and the Wax Museum podcast gets a small commission in the process. It's a win-win. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hey, this is Bob Nettleke, former Indiana Pacer. Played on a few championship teams, had a lot of fun. You know, I'm listening to the Wax Museum podcast, one of the best there is. Okay, so I posted about this on social media this weekend and got a lot of good responses. I'd like to elaborate a little bit on that conversation here, and I want to try and use it as a framework to have a larger hobby discussion about interacting with the other people um, in this ecosystem. And I, I suppose, you know, that means there's a little bit of psychology mixed in. Nothing too deep. Obviously, I'm not a psychologist. I won't be naming theories or anything, but this hobby is comprised of people all making different decisions. And I, I started with the ecosystem theme last week, and you know what? It's still on my mind. So how are we going to function harmoniously? 
Especially as we find ourselves with so many new participants and we're experiencing a major shift all at the same time. So this weekend I was exploring Reddit, um, the, the basketball card subreddit more specifically. I think I've talked about it some on here before. That place is a bit of a mixed bag. It's a lot of the same, where can I find retail? What are the rules at Target? Which card should I grade? Um, but occasionally there's a nice surprise that is, it's always like super, super random. Like, hey, I found this LeBron Super Fractor I pulled 15 years ago in a, you know, pile of dirty needles, right? It's always something really weird that just, like, you can't wrap your head around, but you, there's pictures of it and you see it. So, um, anyway, right before I logged in on this particular day, someone posted the following question, and I'm going to read it in full. They said... If the card has been slabbed professionally, do you still have to disclose flaws on the card? Got a card graded that I knew was slightly damaged, had indentation lines down the back. Now that it's officially slabbed, in the event I want to sell on eBay, do I still gotta show and explain the flaws? Or does getting it graded negate that and the buyer only cares about the card's official grade? Well, uh, first off, I applaud this person for asking the question. I think, you know, it's a thoughtful question. I think it's a reasonable question. I think it's worthy of discussion. And it's not something you see asked again and again. And it's not something you can just Google. So, um, you know, just out of sheer coincidence, I was I was on when around when that was posted. I think I was either the first or second reply. But um, I said, I think it's still the right thing to do. Meaning he should disclose it, describe the card as accurately as possible. Um, this comment was almost immediately downvoted into oblivion. Uh, they sent me to the shadow realm. So now, you know, I'm not super worried about likes and dislikes, um, upvotes and downvotes and all of that stuff. That's not going to change the way I view something, but I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a bit taken back by the response because on a site like Reddit, when something gets downvoted enough, the comment actually... I guess you could say it collapses and it's hidden. You'd have to you'd have to look for it um, and hit a plus sign to open that comment up again. And not you know a lot of people aren't going to do that. There's extra clicks to find it. So um, you know posting your opinion or disagreeing with someone is one thing. That's fine. But actively downvoting something that you don't agree with to the point where it's hidden uh, that seems a, a bit narrow-minded, and I, I think you could safely say that someone that does that is a shallow person. So they're either incapable of reason, or if they're capable, they're too lazy to actually look at the factors and consider them. Either way, that's a bad spot to be in, and the ho hobby as a whole isn't going to thrive if it's full of shallow people. It's not healthy. Um, now, on the other hand, there were some people that disagreed and typed up their thoughts, and for all I know, it might be the same people that downvoted me. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and assume it's not, though, um, because otherwise, probably the only thing worse than suppressing someone in this situation is suppressing someone and then using that newly created space, moving them out of the way, and presenting your opinion as a fact even louder. So, okay, yes, so I gave my, my general stance, you know, and, and, and remember, I'm reacting to this specific question where he said there was indentation lines on the back. So I said, yes, they should be revealed. I don't think every little flaw needs to be addressed, but anything significant and anything that's hard to see in the pictures um, or anything major that 
might have been missed by the grader probably deserves a mention. Um, so here are some of the other responses from that thread, and then I'm going to give some general comments afterward. So one response said, I think the official grade reveals the flaw and you have no additional obligation to call them out. The beauty of selling a graded versus raw card is that the buyer knows exactly what they're getting. Another person said, the grade is the acknowledgement of the flaw. Um, someone else said, the card has been graded. That's the purpose of grading. So there's no discussion about what condition the card is in. What would be the point of grading? And then finally, someone added, I think you just need to describe the slab condition, not the card, since it has been graded, in my opinion. Okay, so you, you know, those of you listening at home or in your car or wherever, you might not agree with me on all this, um, and that's fine. You know, there were some people that responded to my social media posts that didn't either. I'm not trying to convince you of that necessarily, uh, but I do want to give a little explanation. I, I can't, you know, remember, I can't just abandon this question, but uh, remember, this is really just a conduit to talk about our interactions within the hobby ecosystem. So, um, you know, real quick, in reference to the comment that the buyer knows exactly what they're getting, this was my major hesitation about StockX when it first started. And you remember, I did an episode on it. We all know that all, you know, all PSA 9s are not created equal. By science alone, they're just not. There's four factors determining a grade. All sorts of combinations could create a 9. And then also, people have different preferences. I've talked before about uh, several years ago when I was looking at LeBron uh, Topps Chrome rookies, which I definitely can't look at them now. But um, I spent a lot of time looking and shopping for one in, in my price range that had the best eye appeal to me. Well, I received one that was different than the picture listed. I, I wasn't happy. I sent it back. And he said, well, you know, an eight's an eight. No, it's not. Um, we also know that there are way too many undergraded and overgraded cards in circulation right now. And I just did a segment earlier that talked about PSA working to improve their speed and accuracy. All of the grading companies have made mistakes, though, because they're human. So, um, remember the Zion BGS Black Label? Well, that was clearly not a perfect 10. People were upset about it because it, it seemed off. Um, and even uh, PWCC, remember, they pulled the card from their listing. I asked why. They said something to the effect of BGS feeling that the grade compromised the integrity of their brand. And that was after Jeremy Murray sent me some fluff response about them standing behind all their grades. Now, in the case of the Zion, at least potential buyers could clearly see that the centering was off on the front. But in the example presented on Reddit, they might not be able to see the lines on the back of the card. All of that is to say, and I, you know, I'm not going to drag that part of the segment out because that's not the, the main goal here. All of that is to say, I think this Reddit thread is a great reminder of three things that we need to be mindful of as we enter this new phase of the hobby. Some of them I've alluded to already, um, but I'm going to mention them again as I close things out today. Number one, understand that the landscape is most certainly changing. Now, I know when I say that, the hobby's already been changing at an incredible pace over the last 18 months and picking up people along the way. We saw a lot of small, impactful changes taking place time and time again. Um, but at this point, those people aren't just jumping into the ecosystem. You know, I would say that, you know, we've had, I don't know if there's, a, you know, a ton of new entrants every day now. I think the people that are going to enter, 
for the most part, are coming in. And we still have a trickle of people coming in, but not like the waves that we had lately, I don't think. So um, I think all of the people that um, you know are in this now, they've been a functioning part of it. I think they brought some good and some bad, but this time for the first time, we're experiencing a big shift with these people already aboard. And we're, we're seeing the reaction of what really a lot of those people have been trained to do. Everyone, you know, when everyone came in, they said, grade your cards, grade your cards, grade your cards. You'll make a lot of money. Um, and here we are with the backlog and gradings just like completely shut down. So um, I think, you know, I say we need to understand, but know that understanding goes beyond simple recognition. It goes back to last week. Recognize the change and figure out how you're going to react. How will you have to adapt your current model? So for me, you know, there were things that were happening prior. Um, I mentioned buying a LeBron Chrome rookie and, and being shipped a worse looking copy with the same grade. When that happened, you know, I thought that was anomalous. At least that was the first time I had experienced that. I didn't know if that was really much of a thing or not. Well, um, as evidenced by all the answers in the Reddit thread, there are a lot of people that feel like the label tells all. And that tells me, even though I've already had that LeBron experience, that I have to think twice about the kind of stuff now um, when I'm buying online. And I feel like uh, over the last year, I've adapted and adapted and adapted so many times to where yeah, actually things were getting comfortable. Like I was getting used to the way things were and getting used to the chaos maybe of the last year and a half, and I let my guard down, but things are changing again. And I think we need to be mindful of that in our actions moving forward, need to consider that information. Uh, because if that many people are okay with someone selling a card and not disclosing significant damage, then those people are likely to do the same thing. And guys like you and I are probably buying from some of them. Uh, number two, number two, don't get in the way of worthwhile dialogue. And I guess after this most recent incident, I should add on to that, don't suppress it either. I know I've been a pretty big defender of online forums in the past, and, and part of that's just nostalgia. You know, I'm, I'm not happy with the current state of a lot of forums. Um, but also, you know, and, and I, hey, I say that, I don't know if I'm doing anything to make the situation better. But also, I, I feel like forums um, could still be one of the best tools for text-based conversations. So I'm going to try and stick around, even if I don't participate as much as I used to. But um, there have been a lot of things in general over the last, I guess, decade or so, maybe even longer now, that have changed our perceptions of dialogue. And that includes things like social media and sports debate shows, especially, you know, like First Take, those kind of shows. A lot of people don't realize that those shows are theater and they're not always representative of purposeful, healthy dialogue in real life. Um, I suppose I'm deviating from cards a little here, but I promise it all relates. I talked about overhearing conversations at the last card show I was at. And the week before that, I talked about the benefits of sitting behind the table. It gives me a great opportunity to talk to people, to share some of my experiences, to ask questions, and to try and read the room. Not everyone has the luxury of talking about cards in person, and we have to replace those experiences with secondary things like message boards and social media, but the same rules apply. Do not back yourself into an echo chamber. Okay, what does that mean? Don't follow people that think exactly like you do. Don't follow just people that collect exactly like you do. Now, 
I mean, I'm not going to tell you to do that. I say don't. That sounded real firm and and uh, <laughs> and secure there. But you know, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. I don't think it's a good idea to do that though. Make it a point to interact with people that enjoy the hobby in different ways than you do. Ask them about their experiences that have shaped their philosophy of collecting or their philosophy of flipping even. Don't try to hide their opinions just because they're different from yours, especially if they're not hurting anyone. Now, if they're hurting someone, that's different. Okay, And that's a lot of times if you hear me lashing out at somebody, it's because I feel like they're hurting someone. I don't like that. Um, and then finally, number three, don't treat every interaction or every transaction like it's a one-off. Operate under the assumption that you're going to be working with the other party again in the near future, even if you're sure that you won't. And you've heard enough of my mail day segments by now. You've heard some of them were literally years in the making. So operate with the assumption that you'll work with the other party again. And this is something that's become a lot more apparent to me because of my local card show scene. There are, um, I guess you could say, natural checks and balances. And of course, you should always, in general, you should always be looking to make fair deals with people. But that realization is definitely more on your mind when you deal with people that you know you're going to see three, four weeks later. And you know you're probably going to end up dealing with them again. Um, a month or two ago, I talked about a botched trade that I was trying to work at a show and how it was essentially ruined because I started engagements on a card that I wasn't sure if I wanted to own. Nobody was trying to rip anyone off in that situation. I wasn't trying to rip the guy off. He was being very fair with me. But if you remember, I reflected on that fact that I probably hurt my chances of dealing with that person again. And and maybe, you know, they, they'll sweep it away and it's no big deal. But at the very least, I would think they're going to have that scenario in the back of their mind. I would. But we need each other in this hobby ecosystem. And I'd like to think that our actions are mindful of that. Um, I guess at worst, be respectful of other people because it benefits you in the long run. If you want to look at this from a selfish perspective. If you're hard to deal with, word gets around. If you burn bridges left and right word gets around. Now, that doesn't mean you just give stuff away or let people walk all over you. In anything that's transactional, you have to have a little bit of teeth, right? In social interactions too, but you have to find your balance. All right. Well, there you have it. Like I said, we need each other in the hobby ecosystem. Understand that the landscape is changing. Don't get in the way of purposeful dialogue and treat others like you want to be treated. It all sounds simple enough, but a lot of it is easier said than done. And um, these were three principles I took from that interaction on Reddit. Sometimes I have to stop and go through them again for myself. I figure some of you uh, maybe have to do the same. So uh, maybe there was something I said today that resonated with you, or maybe you have some thoughts you want to add. Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed today's episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site. Uh, this is very simple, and it doesn't cost you anything. You're going to buy the stuff anyway, so please help me out if you enjoy this show. Uh, before you go purchase or bid on an item, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that. 
and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow that click. It's a simple way to support the show, but if multiple people do that, it really helps me out. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.